right, everybody, welcome back to Axe of Pod. My name is Brandon Shu. I'm the host of Axe of Pod. And today we have a couple special guests joining us to talk about active shooters and uh, the insurance and liability risks that go along with that. We have Michael Steinloggy from Larson King. Good morning or good afternoon, Michael. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining. And we have Betsy Burgess. Thanks for joining Exapod. Thanks for having me. Did I say your last name right, Betsy? That's right, Betsy Burgess. Oh, perfect. Why don't we uh, Why don't we kick it off here, Mike and Betsy, and just talk a little bit about your backgrounds and the firms you represent, just so we can create a little context for the listeners today. Mike, why don't you go first? Sure. Thanks, Brandon. So Larson King is a law firm, a boutique law firm focused on insurance coverage and litigation uh, risks cases. In St. Paul, although we represent companies around the country, particularly in the insurance and reinsurance context, my interest actually in this topic, or I guess focus on it, actually began back in probably seven or eight years ago when as part of my role with the ABA, I was approached by the ABA Task Force on Gun Violence to speak to a group as part of a program they were presenting about the insurance industry's view uh, or approach to guns. And as a result of that, I spent some time speaking with clients about that specific topic and came to realize that in many cases, insurance companies don't, in the normal day-to-day underwriting practices, focus on gun violence and even guns in any way, shape, or form. And so ultimately, that led me to kind of spend time thinking about that, that kind of coincided with some opportunity, the, the evolution of and growth of mass shootings in the country. And here we are today still talking about it, unfortunately. Yeah, it always gets reignited anytime there's obviously an event that happens. and We kind of tend to get ourselves focused back on it. Meanwhile, obviously, there's a lot of fallout and disruption that happens uh, and, you know, horror that happens as a result of these events. But, uh, there does seem it seems to have that speaks and valleys in every industry, including insurance. When we start talking about you know active shooters, uh, Betsy, how about you? Sure. So my practice is with Carr Allison in Tallahassee, Florida. We are a regional law firm all over the southeast, and my particular practice is civil litigation defense. So most of my clients are companies, retailers, um, any kind of business that interacts with the public could potentially be one of my clients. And so I first became involved with this topic by virtue of, of being pulled in to help to defend an active shooter case uh, here locally. So that obviously got me very interested in the the way these litigations are trending. And that's why I decided to write the article about it. You know, whenever you have a client who um, interacts directly with the public, this is something that they need to be aware of and they need to start preparing for because it's, it's no longer something that happens once in a blue moon. It's it's become more and more commonplace and our, our clients need to be aware of that. Betsy, you mentioned you defended it, you know, one of these active shooter cases. Obviously, I'm sure there's a lot of kind of iterations and, and uh, you know, back and forth that happen after an event like this. Is there, from an insurance standpoint, what did you learn going through this process in terms of coverage adequacy or inadequacy or just kind of the insurance industry's preparedness to defend something like this? Well, fortunately, in that case, there was insurance coverage. So and it and it kicked in. So I I do believe that it's out there and it's available. 
I don't know the the specifics of that insurance coverage that was in that case because that wasn't my focus. I was defending the the liability aspect of it. But fortunately, there was insurance coverage that kicked in. Yeah. So from an insurance standpoint, Mike, there's obviously been a lot of heartburn over this issue. We have some very large active shooting events that have happened the past few years. I think probably most notably the you know the MGM event, and it was very public in terms of insurance journals and and literature on you know the amount of erosion that that specific event had on the insurance industry. You know there was multiple millions of dollars. 20s, 30s, 40s, 50, 100 million dollars worth of coverage eroded on that case, just according to public media outlets. Has has there been any sort of change or inflection that's happened in the defense of these cases since since having such a public uh, litigated matter like MGM? I think that case was certainly a wake up call that these exposures are not simply costs of defense exposures, but in fact can result in real indemnification uh, liability for companies. And just to backtrack or, or back up, I mean, typically when you look at, think of these events, I think people's natural inclination is to say, well, of course, there's no coverage for the shooter. It's an intentional act. And in fact, that's typically the case, although there are instances where there can be coverage, either because of, for instance, mental illness or other permutations around the event and the particular state law that might apply. But once you get beyond that and you realize that because often there is not any real money, if you will, behind the perpetrator themselves, invariably people representing victims in those cases are looking for someone else to hold responsible. And that's where I think insurance really does come into play and certainly came into play in the context of the MGM Grand lawsuit. There you had a hotel primarily where he a shooter was holed up and obviously shot from having to answer for its role in that event. And you see that again and again with businesses, whether it's retail establishments, clinics, hospitals, schools, universities, all of these you know, public-facing business establishments, they're more and more being involved in these types of incidents. And, and so I think it does result in companies taking a harder look, or should at least result in companies taking a harder look at what the profile is or what actions are being taken by their clients with respect to prepare for these types of events. Right. So, I mean, obviously these events are happening more and more. That's certainly part of the problem. And I'm sure we could diagnose or analyze, you know, why they're happening more and more to the end of the day, but uh, we probably don't need to get too far down that track, but obviously they're happening more. So the exposure is increasing. Mike and Betsy, are you seeing more of your clients start thinking more about this? You know, how do we prepare ourselves to to deal with the potential of, of an active shooter situation? Certainly mine are. So the theories of liability that are being advanced by the the plaintiff's attorneys that are bringing these cases are most often negligent security. So what does that mean? Conventionally, negligent security has to do with, you know, are you providing adequate security for the level of risk that you can reasonably anticipate at a certain place? Well, in previous years, even going back to 2012, when the Aurora, Colorado shooting happened, 
active shooting events were so rare that it was not necessarily something that a retail establishment would anticipate would happen at their place of business. Now that's actually changing just by virtue of the number that have occurred since then. And not only has the number changed, but the public's attitude towards this has changed. And what we expect of our private businesses to do to protect us as the public from these shootings has changed. So what what are we advising our clients to do? Well, we look at the lawsuits and we see the theories that are being advanced have to do with, look, if you're not going to have like active security, advanced security through an armed guard, I mean, there's a lot of different forms that can take. What you've got to have is maybe an example of a small business is employee preparation and training. How do you train an employee to identify somebody that is suspicious walking in to identify behaviors, to see that risk before it happens and take action? Many lawsuits are now advancing that that that's what we have to do. We have to train our employees. There have to be drills. How do we do that? There's government programs. There's private contractors that do this training. And if I am in a position of defending a lawsuit, I want to be able to tell a jury that my client did all of these things. So while something may never happen, and certainly that's what we hope, what we have now is we're all under some level of constructive notice that this can happen and does happen. And so we have to be prepared. Yeah, and those those issues or that analysis and considerations, they have grounding in the actual common law of most states, which follow what they call the restatement and tend to emphasize. I mean, they, they emphasize at the outset that in most cases, a business is not does not have a duty to exercise care or to protect against the criminal acts of individuals, of third parties. What changes that duty is if they know or have reason to know that a person does, in fact, present an imminent danger. And and that's where you start, I think, to Betsy's point. Companies start having greater duties based upon expectations and the recognition of the active shooters uh, likelihood of those events occurring to monitor, keep track of people in their businesses and their stores, monitor for strange behavior and do things like that. And that's because those types of that type of awareness creates arguably a duty once you are aware of somebody acting in a strange manner. Of course, the problem with mass shootings, I mean, there there's all kinds of strange behavior that can lead to assaults, but mass shootings are, are of a whole separate and higher degree that I think there's still an apprehension among courts to, to suggest that you know, knowledge of strange behavior somehow necessarily equates to knowledge of you know, somebody's potential to inflict mass casualties on folks. And that's where the law is still, I think, evolving and perhaps not yet ready to go. But there are actually some instances, actual examples of appellate courts in Colorado and elsewhere, where courts have actually gone that extra step or at least found that there was a fact question around that that would allow a jury to decide, which for purposes of you know an insurance company and what exposure it creates for them, once it's in the hands of the jury, obviously it's anybody's guess in many cases about what how that might resolve itself. That's absolutely true. And what we're finding in Florida is courts, trial courts, are becoming less and less willing to grant any kind of dispositive motion relating to this and sending it to the jury to decide what's reasonable. So that's making it more difficult to uh, get cases resolved. It's making it more difficult to make those internal decisions. 
I can only see as time goes on that continuing to be the case. And hopefully there will be case law that comes out that gives us more guidance that we can give to our clients about what the law requires of them in this particular arena. But it's still evolving very rapidly. And every week I read the opinions, you know, hoping something comes out that will help me help my clients. But right now we just, we give the best advice we can um, to engage in preventive efforts, because not only can that help stop a shooting event from occurring, but it can help you put you in a better defensible position if you find yourself in that situation. If, if I'm hearing you right, both of you, you're saying that in general, without, with, with the absence of some sort of negligence by the employer, there's no specific duty by the employer to you know, be responsible for the aftermath of something like this. Which brings me to a question on insurance. Uh, this is an area that I've been looking at more and more. But you know, with that in mind, Mike, how does conventional general liability or property policies how, how do they look at these events? You know, without some sort of mono line active shooter policy purchased. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, general liability policies are going to cover claims of negligence, and in the first instance, there is going to be a colorable claim of negligence in a lawsuit uh, brought on behalf of victims against the business. And so there will, in almost all instances, be coverage for the, again, the secondary actor or the business where these events occur. And then from that point, I think, again, historically, the thought was, well, we just move this. We either get out on a motion to dismiss because we can establish that the acts of the active shooter are either not foreseeable as a matter of law or the the second element of it is causation. So you got to prove that the negligence of the business was, in fact, a substantial factor in the actual loss or damage that occurred. And courts, again, historically have said, even on that separate element, that businesses are entitled to summer judgment because the intervening act, the intentional acts of these uh, active shooters defeat any argument that the negligence of the business was a substantial contributing cause. So that's kind of been the evolution. In fact, if you look at some of the early cases, or the not early cases, but the, I guess, more recent cases, for instance, involving the Aurora theater shooting, there the court initially found that it was a question of fact, or they weren't willing to grant summary judgment on the issue of whether or not there was a duty. But ultimately, they did grant summary judgment to the business or the the defendant, the theater company, on the issue of causation. But as kind of consistent with this theme of the law evolving more recently, in fact, just last this time last year, the Colorado Supreme Court came out with a a decision involving a different shooting event at a Planned Parenthood. And there they actually clinic. And then there they found that even on the issue of causation and whether or not the businesses, in this case, again, the Planned Parenthood clinic's failure to properly, I guess, harden its facility against the threat of active shooters, that that could be a substantial contributing cause. And so they actually found or rejected or reversed the grant of summary judgment. And ultimately that case will go to the jury. So that's, I think, maybe a long way of answering in terms of the insurance company's perspective. It's It gets them in a situation or posture where the defense costs are going to be much larger and higher than they would have historically been. And once you get to a jury, the potential indemnification 
you know, loss is significantly higher or certainly more pronounced than it used to be. I mean, you talk about Planned Parenthood, they're a nonprofit, you know, they have no real inherent knowledge, I'm sure, of, you know, security detail or, you know, how to protect their employees against something like this. So how do they arrive at the decision? And I guess this might be a little uh, bit of a theoretical question, but how do they arrive at a decision to put more of this blame on the insured or the entity where this is certainly not something that they do for a living? So how do they become more equipped or more well-equipped to have some of these defenses in place where they might be able to better protect their employees? You know, what, what is the court's perspective on that? How are they supposed to do that? Well, I can speak specifically to the Planned Parenthood case, and there there were specific threats made, in fact, threats that had escalated based upon certain news reports of activity that the entity was involved in, pieces that, that created some really almost hysterical threats against the company or the clinic. So there you end up with arguably a more foreseeable threat. And then in that case, took certain precautions, but they were half measures. They had a security guard, but they weren't on duty all the time. In fact, they weren't on duty when the event actually occurred. And then they had an expert in that case that testified to the fact that, you know, there were simple steps that they could have taken hardening the property, bulletproof glass, things like that, that based upon the threats that they should have considered and were reasonable to expect them to consider. We can talk about the policy, some of the policy, public policy considerations around that but that's specific to that case. I, I'm sure Betsy probably has some broader perspectives for employers beyond a Planned Parenthood clinic, which may be somewhat unique in terms of where it stands in terms of the foreseeability of, a, of an attack. Right. So if I'm the, the plaintiff's attorney in, in that case, my, my argument's going to be, you know, Planned Parenthood, this is a politically charged subject right? So they have a heightened duty to anticipate that something might happen. There are very radical people on both sides of the issue that puts that particular place in a heightened duty status to protect because we've seen that happen for many, many years. Those aren't just active shootings at, you know, gas stations or something like that. That's happened before. You know, there's a political aspect to what we do. Frequently, people are picketing outside. You know, there's enough to give notice that violence is foreseeable. So that would be the difference between a Planned Parenthood and say like a convenience store. Conventionally, the way we would defend a a negligent premises live, negligent security premises case is you look at the history of violence in the immediate vicinity. Well, that's changing now with active shooters because even if there hasn't been any violence in the immediate vicinity, We all know, we've seen the news. We know that shootings can occur randomly, absolutely no pattern to who is targeted or where or why. So now we are in a very different position than we used to be in terms of what our duty is. And normally the question of duty is one that you can have the judge decide based on the law. In Florida, we have a very specific process we have to go through pertaining to whether there is a duty on foreseeability. And so what we're seeing is judges putting that more to a jury, like the question of foreseeability and whether this particular place, retail establishment, had that kind of duty because they could foresee this happening. And so businesses can't say anymore that, well, you know, we're a convenience store, we're a dry cleaner. We don't have any reason to suspect somebody's going to come in here and shoot up the place. You know, we didn't do anything. We don't have armed guards. We don't have this. We don't have that. Nobody has that. Why do we have to have that. 
And so the conversation I have to have with my clients is the old rules don't apply anymore. We are living in a different world now. And you are expected, if you are interacting with the public, to understand there is a risk, there is a foreseeability that this could happen at your place. And you've got to be in a position where you can say, I did something to prevent this. Now, what that something is, is all over the place. And ultimately, what we're seeing is that becomes a question for a jury to decide if they did enough. And there's it's never going to be enough to a plaintiff's attorney. They're always going to argue, yeah, they were doing this and this and this, but they could have done this. They could have done this and they could have done this. And they didn't. So then you've got to rely on a jury to sort it out. And when you're looking at a question that's going to go to a jury, it, it changes the litigation very much. And so that's kind of where we are now. And the best advice we can give our clients is do the best you can to train your employees, do the best you can to, like Mike said before, harden the location, you know, bulletproof glass, that those kinds of things. The more you can say you did, the better off you'll be in a liability case. So that's where the practice has changed. I would say, thankfully, though, that the law does recognize there has to be some tangible evidence of prior similar incidents. And again, the more extreme in terms of the event that you're talking about, the, the less likely there is going to be evidence that would qualify as evidence of similar incidents that would put a business on notice for purposes of foreseeability in terms of taking those types of preparations. The other part of the duty, which is important for businesses to recognize, is that you know even if you are, for lack of a better term, safe in terms of not having taken all these extreme measures to protect against an event that you don't have any reason to believe is necessarily going to occur at your location. Once you are aware of an actual person on the premises or who has, you know, is on their way to the premises, who is poses that threat, then there's an additional duty or separate duties that arise to do whatever you can to protect the people in your business. And that's, I think sometimes it, it doesn't always get broken down that way by courts and plaintiffs, but arguably there is a, a basis to or make a separate argument that even if you didn't have any foresight of this event occurring, if it occurs over a period of time, and for instance, let's take a retail establishment. If your employees aren't trained and they're just leaving the, you know, running out the back door and abandoning all the people and not doing anything to warn anybody about what's going on and the imminent risk that's occurring in the store based upon a first encounter, that arguably could create a separate basis for liability for the company. So I, I think that's, it, it's very nuanced. And I, I just didn't want you know anybody listening to this to get the impression that every business now has to be hardened. That's not right. the case. Right. Prior similar incidents is still a measure. And in fact, courts take very narrow view of that. And in fact, they're loath to suggest that just general criminal activity somehow creates a notion of foreseeability of an actual active shooter because of the public policy implications to come along with that. I mean, then suddenly businesses and urban cores where there's just generally more criminal activity are going to be more difficult to ensure and are going to have a different duty than those in suburbs. And they obviously don't want the law to create that kind of difference in approach. So and this is probably even a, even a more nuanced question, but obviously, you know, municipalities where these incidents occur have police forces or sheriff's department. And what is the breakdown between the responsibility of the organization and the responsibility of, you know, local police or the city? I mean, is 
I, I assume that's all taken into the equation of when these uh, when these things come up. But and there's a certain amount of governmental immunity, I'm sure, that takes place in most cities. But is there some sort of balance there, or is most of the uh, liability, the exposure, directly to you know whatever organization or company or university this might happen at? I think it depends. Most of these cases are very fact specific. And what you're suggesting is very much the case. We find that the sheriff's offices and police departments, they will find themselves on the, the wrong side of the V in a lawsuit if they have a duty to be there to provide security by virtue of the size of the event. So like a music festival type thing. Those are the kinds of cases that implicate the governmental law enforcement agencies. And then, of course, there is the sovereign immunity aspect of it that comes into play. So they, in my experience, will try to find a a private entity if they can. But absolutely, if they can make a case that this event was big enough and they knew that it was going to happen and they knew the number of people that were going to be there, then not only the event planners, but the actual local law enforcement agencies are put on notice that they need to have a presence there. And then the question becomes, is that enough of a presence, which is the question in every single one of these cases, ultimately. Yeah. I'm even thinking of the, uh, you know, the Planned Parenthood situation where there's obviously threats beforehand. You know, how does that come into play if the plaintiff is trying to blame an organization for not hardening or something along those lines? But, you know, they reported it to the police. And, you know, how does that it's it does sound very nuanced. And I'm sure there's a million different ways these things can go. But it sounds like uh, the private entity is probably the uh, burdening a lot of the load on some of the stuff. Yeah, there are certainly examples, though, uh, again, very fact specific where local law enforcement have been implicated and, and I imagine have in a way that, that doesn't allow them just to simply get out on the basis of qualified immunity. I mean, there are doctrines. In fact, I think there was just a decision out of the First Circuit uh, last year in November that affirmed the existence of the state-created danger doctrine, which is an exception to qualified immunity for police. And again, it, it typically requires something more than just not responding in, a, in an appropriate manner or in a sufficient manner to a risk. It, it often involves very specific examples of conduct by police. For instance, I can think of an example. It's not from this First Circuit case, but in an active shooter case, mass shooting case in California from several years ago, where the parents of the ultimate actor you know, were concerned about their son and asked the police to check in on him. And they also you know, and they investigated his social media and they see that he's making threats about committing the acts that ultimately he commits. And then if action isn't taken in that particular circumstance, you know, do they, is there potentially some liability there? I think even in that situation, it's obviously dependent and they're going to be mindful of police resources and things like that. But First Circuit case involved a very unique case, situation where the police were aware of a domestic abuse situation and threats against an individual woman in the case who ultimately died at the hands of her ex-boyfriend, you know, was actually had hidden, gone into hiding. And the police somehow gave his notice of her address to the ultimate shooter. And as a result, she was able to track him down. They didn't warn her. And so it was a very unique set of circumstances. That's typically where you're going to find law enforcement perhaps having to deal with a case and at, at some level beyond just simply 
being named and then you know getting out based upon qualified immunity. I think we're going to know more about this as things develop um, following the insurrection at the Capitol, because that is being very closely scrutinized as to why there wasn't more law enforcement presence there with the information they had about the people that were there and the, the rally and all of that. So I think we'll get some helpful guidance going forward as that plays out. Got it. Well, this brings me to the kind of the insurance coverage portion of this conversation. There's obviously a lot of advancements in kind of parametric insurance or insurance that is specifically isolated to different exposures. And we're certainly seeing that happen here uh, with active shooter policies now. But maybe Mike or Betsy, you could kind of outline you know, what we've seen in the past with how these insurance companies have reacted or covered the losses and where the kind of the delta or gray area might be where an active shooter policy might be able to support in, you know, coverage where a general liability policy might not be able to. We've been focused on liability policies right now. The other, obviously, form of insurance that comes into play in these situations is property insurance, whether it's the form of insurance actually covering damage to a, a building as a result of this type of incident or you know, business interruption associated with the business being closed down. And it became apparent fairly early on as mass shooting events became more known and publicized that insurance, the, the traditional property insurance didn't always respond to the very unique issues that insureds in those situations faced. I mean, they needed crisis management support. They needed you know, enhanced security following the incident not only immediately following the incident, but for instance, on the anniversary of the incident, because in very notorious cases, the anniversary can be a, a separate heightened risk situation for businesses. And then you also have issues related to the building may not be significantly damaged, but there's a permanent stigma attached to it that makes it perhaps no longer practical to continue the business at that location. And schools in particular, I think, I mean, the Newtown school shooting, that school ultimately was torn down and rebuilt because nobody would want to send their kid back to that school. So there are active shooter endorsements or standalone policies that have evolved. I think that was the earliest response by the industry to these types of specific risks. And they provide a, a combination of third-party and first-party coverage, similar to cyber, what is, as you noted previously, Brandon. And, and they, again, have, in some cases, very specific coverage related to paying, agreeing to pay enhanced security. And again, recognizing, for instance, stigma as a potential basis or grounds for having money that would allow the company to relocate. Uh, or their business to relocate someplace else. Yeah, it's one of the uh, unique forms in the insurance industry, at least so far, like cyber, where you have both first-party and third-party coverages. So, you know, the business interruption perspective is a very first-party loss type of exposure. But then you have, you know, medical expenses and legal liability and, and uh, areas like that where it's more third-party. So it, it's definitely a form that is attempting to provide coverage holistically, I think, here in this situation. So I, I do think there's some probably benefits to having it. Have, have either of your clientele uh, started going down this this path of looking at monoline uh, active shooter policies? 
I represent, tend to represent insurance and reinsurers more. And, and so in terms of what they've been offering, I've understand that in many cases, these endorsements, for instance, providing this additional coverage may be offered without any additional charge, just because even though it's valuable in the rare instance where this type of event occurs, the reality is that it still kind of defies pricing in terms of some type of actuarial-based model that an insurance company might rely upon. And in the vast majority of cases, it's not never going to be utilized. You know, I think you also see, not to jump beyond too far beyond your question, but on the liability side, there obviously are exclusions that exist, some of which are broader than others. I mean, the intentional act exclusion tends to be focused just on the intent of the insured and the policies will typically differentiate between the, the business or let's use a homeowner's policy as an example, where the parents get sued because they knew about the preparations or they should have known what you know their, their child was up to. And then in many cases, the insurance company will still respond or the, the homeowner's policy will still respond, even though obviously there was an intentional act, but it wasn't the intentional act of the parents that created that. But then some policies have broader exclusions. They have criminal act exclusions. Um, they have assault exclusions. And in some cases, those are interpreted more broadly and may not necessarily differentiate between the insureds. There might be even more you know, analysis required on some of these exclusions because you, know, you have things like a terrorism exclusion, which can get probably a little murky. Employee exclusions on some of these uh, policies I've seen out there. Vehicle exclusions, you know, which... Because obviously there was some sort of car that crashes into a public space or something like that, which is not an active shooter, but it's obviously an act of terrorism uh, for all intents and purposes. That exact issue came up in a case where a shooter actually was using his car, he was shooting from his car. And so there was, you know, an argument about whether or not that implicated yeah. exclusions associated with vehicles. So, yeah, it, it, there are... Needless to say, given particularly in the, the more extreme circumstances, I think insurance companies will look to those types of exclusions and, and utilize them or raise them where they're, where they're available. But, you know, it, particularly in the more newsworthy incidents, there's also just a perception and uh, public relations element to some of these issues. I, I think MGM is a perfect example of a situation where nobody wanted to hash out these issues, whether they relate to the underlying insured's responsibility for the event or whether or not there were potentially insurance exclusions that might apply. I mean, fortunately there, MGM had a, a large tower of insurance that was able to respond, but that is another consideration in play for insurance companies. Yeah, there's a lot to consider there. You know, a lot of pressure from the outside, from PR, from the news media and everything else to make these things go away anyways if they happen. So certainly a lot of pressure points to look at here as as this kind of evolves. Hopefully it doesn't have to evolve that much more. And, you know, we're, we, don't, we don't see the pace continue, but that might be uh, a little bit too optimistic. So it's definitely something that is coming up more and more, though, with my clients on the insurance side, and we're seeing these monoline active shooter policies being marketed or at least being kind of advertised by the industry. And, you know, I think they right now they might fit a small demographic, but like cyber, 
you know, where you started out selling cyber policies to the largest organizations, big, large retailers, and you know, large healthcare organizations. Like it get as the language becomes more refined, you know, I think it can probably apply to a broader array of customers. So, well, I think you're starting to. I mean, you're starting to hear rumblings at least around the discussion about does insurance have a role to play in creating a environment where businesses are incentivized to take more precautions, yeah, acting more as a gatekeeper through loss control and expectations. I mean, a good example would be, for instance, retailers that sell assault rifles. Is insurance perhaps, and you know, an insurance, a increased cost of insurance associated with carrying those types of arms in, in your inventory and selling them to customers, is that a way to perhaps create some corporate behavior that reduces the likelihood of somebody going out, purchasing yeah. an AR-15, and then walking off to uh, school and, and using it? So right. I, I think insurance companies do have, and, and you see that, I mean, not to get too far afield, but you see that now coming into play in terms of fossil fuel industries and oil and gas and ESG exposures. You see yeah. People starting to look at insurance as a way of uh, creating incentives. So it arguably could apply equally in, in this instance. Yeah, you could see it how it might be just part of the normal vernacular where you're, you know, where you're going through a submission and you know, you need a business continuity plan to uh, underwrite a university or you know, how are they dealing with active shooters or schools or hospitals or whatever is just part of the requirement by the property carrier, by the general liability carrier. So I could certainly see where that might happen more and more and be normal within the coming years here. So, well, good. You know, I think we covered most of the bases here that I wanted to hit on. Looks like we're coming to the end of the hour here. So I appreciate you both being with with us here on Acts of Pod and and giving a little bit more perspective on, you know, your your insight and your your knowledge as it pertains to this active shooter environment here that we're unfortunately going through. Certainly. Thank you for uh, hosting us. And it's a pleasure to finally be on your uh, your podcast after <laughs> listening to many of them. I, I hope someday maybe I get to have a repeat performance, perhaps not on this topic, but uh, actually be well, in the bunker. We'll get you in the bunker. Once we have the, uh, the bunker is about 120 degrees right now. So once fall comes around, we'll, we'll get you in the bunker. I, I don't want to, I don't want to sweat you out and uh, end the conversation too early. So perfect. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Betsy, for hopping on as well. It's very nice to meet you. And uh, enjoyed it. Thanks for having yeah, me. Thanks for uh, being on Axapod. Until next time.